The Urbanist is brought to you in association with the Department of Culture and Tourism, Abu Dhabi. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is a beacon of hope and inspiration. A catalyst to spark growth and collaboration with museums and experiences, where art and science and nature and technology coexist. The belief of Abu Dhabi that culture is the backbone of our society. Stay tuned for a special episode of the show, in which you can hear His Excellency Mohammed Khalifa Al-Mubarak explain exactly why and how Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is the perfect place to collaborate, create, and innovate. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi, proud partner of The Urbanist on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Urbanist. Monocle's programme all about the built environment. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... Things are constantly changing. Not only the equipment that we're accommodating, but the way patients will move through a space, the way we treat people and put their health at the centre of everything. A healthy city is a happy city, and access to high-quality healthcare facilities is one of the big benefits of living in dense urban environments. Today, we speak to a specialist in healthcare design to see how the form of these spaces can bring better outcomes to the citizens that use them. We also speak to one of the world's newest chief heat officers to explore why protection against rising temperatures is crucial to our collective well-being. That's coming up over the next 30 minutes, right here on The Urbanist, with me, Andrew Tuck. Welcome to this week's programme. I'm joined firstly today by Polly Barker. Polly is the healthcare lead at TP Bennett, an architecture practice that she's been with for over 20 years. TP Bennett is UK-based, but for the past 10 years, they've also been collaborating with partners across sub-Saharan Africa to deliver hospitals that are sustainable and responsive to the local context there. Polly, thank you for joining us. Perhaps firstly, you could tell me a little bit about your role. What exactly is it that a healthcare lead does? I like to think that health is actually one of the widest sectors and most interesting that you can do in architecture, because not only are we doing everything from IVF clinics to mortuaries and sort of everything in between, but actually we get to work with lots of other teams within the practice, because increasingly healthcare doesn't happen in traditional healthcare settings. So it also happens within offices. So we get to work with the teams who do corporate interiors to put dental suites and GP suites within offices. We've also put things recently on buses, but we're putting diagnostic centres into basements in the city. So I would say healthcare is the best sector to be in because not only is it really useful and technically interesting, but you get to work in almost every other sector at the same time. So we have a smallish, depending on what we're working on, dedicated team within TP Bennett. And we've worked all over the world doing healthcare. I did look at your projects before yeah. we, we came in. I think it's the only time I've ever seen an architecture practice put up a, a mortuary on their website of achieved projects. But we want to talk about the healthcare part of it and, and a huge project that you've been involved in now for a decade in sub-Saharan Africa to build hospitals. Could you tell us about that, please? Yeah, we've been working with a client called NMS Infrastructure, who are a UK 
based company who have a sort of history a lot of them are actually sort of ex-British army officers with a sort of a real can-do attitude and know how to do infrastructure. So what they do is set up packages for African governments so they can go along and say, you need hospitals, we can help you do that. Not only can we help you sort out the finance deal, but then we can build them and we can train your staff on how to use them and we'll stay around and support you for the first five years of your life in running those hospitals. So it's actually quite a unique thing that they offer. And we've from a sort of chance meeting in a hotel lounge in Libya about 15 years ago. We've been working with them to design and build hospitals across sub-Saharan Africa. So we started working with them in Ghana, doing a district hospital program for six hospitals across the country. We've also worked with them in Zambia, in Zimbabwe, and uh, looked at projects in Senegal and Nigeria. And we're currently working with them in Cote d'Ivoire, where we're doing six district hospitals across the country. And we've also got an early stage project with them in Gambia, which is going through sort of contract and funding at the moment. And Gambia is particularly interesting because it's looking at not just doing district hospitals, but actually putting a health education campus together. So there'll be four or five smaller hospitals with a central hospital, which has a university campus. So it can actually not only provide healthcare, but also train up the next generation of healthcare providers. Tell me, when it comes to the architecture, how important is it to deliver buildings which are going to be easy to maintain, easy to erect? Because I imagine that you don't want to get into complicated situations where you're having to oversee a project for many, many years before it can become effective for the community. It's hugely important. And there are lots of ways I could start talking into this. I could talk about sustainability in terms of the energy, both embedded and operational in the building. We could talk about sustainability in terms of it functioning well as a hospital for the next 20, 30 years, sustainability in terms of training the local people to actually build it and maintain it. But you're absolutely right. It's hugely important. The architectural design is as simple as possible to make it as easy to build as possible, to make it as easy to maintain and as low energy to run as possible. And obviously being simple is actually quite complicated and takes a lot of work. So the model that we've developed with them has been slowly developed over the number of years to be as flexible as possible. And essentially the model that we use is a sort of single story pavilion hospital that can be broken up into a kit of smaller parts so it can stack up and down a site because rarely are the sites that we get as flat as we would like. Sometimes they're incredibly challenging and have seasonal rivers running through them, which is obviously challenging. So we design a sort of kit of parts that can sit on any site. You work with the local healthcare teams and the local government to choose the elements of the kit of parts that you want. So how many wards, how many bed spaces, how big your diagnostics department is, how many operating theatres you want, and how much staff residence you want, because obviously that's important as well. So it's a kit of parts that can be adapted to any site. The simple model that we've done is also in terms of operational carbon use, as low carbon as possible. So they're pavilions, they have deep overhang roofs so that you keep the sun off. You can have all the circulation running externally around the building on large deep verandas rather than internally. But it means that if rather than a Western model of a hospital where it would be very deep plan because it's cold in Northern Europe, we shut the windows all the time. So we need to provide ventilation, we need to provide lighting. If you're designing in Africa, 
you want to be as efficient as possible. So we design in, in shallow plans. So the buildings are only, say, two rooms and a corridor deep, which means the air can ventilate naturally through them and daylight can come into most of the areas that it needs to come into. So you're designing them to be as low impact and as low resource intensive whilst running as possible. So yeah, really it's designing an architectural model that fits on the site that can be adapted to lots of different sites and can be flexible for the future. Now, these low-rise buildings, when I looked at many of them, they remind me of the vernacular you have in towns and villages in Africa anyway, where you see tin-roofed low-rise buildings and housing. How much of the materials are available in-country and how much is being shipped in because it's easier or quicker or just doesn't exist? As far as possible, we use materials that don't have to be shipped in. And so you need to look at what's available locally and try and work with that. So, for example, in Ghana, they're really good at doing terrazzo, the sort of solid, very nice architects like it, solid floor, which is also really good for hospitals because it's good for control of infection. So we used a lot of terrazzo in Ghana because you can put it in operating theatres, you can put it in wards, and they can do it locally. And if you damage it or chip it, you don't have to send back to Europe and wait four months for a roll of vinyl to come out to replace it. You can mix up a pot in the workshop and come and fix it in situ. So we used a lot of that in Ghana. In Cote d'Ivoire, they don't have the skills in terrazzo, so we've used something else. So where possible, we use things that are local. We're often working on very remote sites as well. But I think the traditional model of building is fine. But what we're trying to do is innovate within that traditional model. So we have what in appearance looks like a tin roof, but is actually a, a sandwich roof, which keeps the sun off, keeps the heat off. And we're using steel frame systems, but we're actually using a quite innovative system where everything is designed using BIM, building information modeling in a computer. And then we roll a machine out to quite a remote site. We take rolls of steel out and it prints out the building in quite remote sites from strips of steel, and then they get bolted together like a giant Meccano set on site. So you can use traditional materials like steel frame in traditional forms, like sort of vernacular pavilion type buildings, but you can innovate with the materials that you use so that everything as much as possible can be designed off-site, constructed off-site if relevant, and then put together as simply as possible when it's on-site. You talked about sustainability. Are we at a point where these hospitals can gain their energy from solar panels, for example? Are those things being built in at this stage? Yes. As you'll know, with most projects, renewable design off power often gets value engineered out. But where possible, we try and design it in so it's integral to the system. And in the Gambia projects, we've put large compounds for solar panels to go in. Actually, you put them on the ground rather than on the roof because land isn't a premium and it's easier to maintain them whilst they're on the ground. We also, as we talked about, try and maximise the use of natural ventilation and natural daylight by having narrow blocks. There are some areas within, within hospital where you, you have to have mechanical cooling and ventilation. So operating theatres, obviously, you don't want dust blowing in through open windows. So you have to provide it there in a mortuary. You know, you need to keep it cool. You have to provide it there. But what you try to do is group together those areas that actually have to have air conditioning and mechanical ventilation so that they're just isolated areas within a much wider campus and wherever possible you don't have artificial air cooling. It's worth saying part of the reason for doing that is not only to do with sustainability in terms of energy consumption, but sustainability in terms of making the building useful. Often across the areas that we're working in, you'll have regular unpredictable power cuts. So you need to reduce down wherever possible 
the services that you need to power when the power goes off. And that's also part of the reason why we have single storey, because you can't have lifts in a building where there are regular power cuts. Now, Polly, you're 20 years into doing this, and you're incredibly knowledgeable, practical, and enthusiastic about this. But just tell me, I read that you came from a a more traditional background of designing retail spaces. When you entered this world, was there a huge learning curve at the beginning? Oh, absolutely. Huge learning curve. And one of the first things I worked on when I came here was the new ACAD Ambulatory Care and Diagnostics Unit at the Whittington Hospital in North London, which is a big NHS teaching hospital in North London. Yeah, huge learning curve. And even though I was picking up somebody else's design and delivering it, you spend a lot of time reading all the documentation. But that's I'm quite nerdy, so that actually kind of suits me. I like to read and learn the rules and then apply them in the most creative way possible. But one of the nice things about it, having been 20 years since I started working on the Whittington, is that now that's where I take my kids when they need to go and see a doctor, when we designed it and we sat down and went, okay, we're going to have a big entrance area and you'll come in here and you'll pick up a pager and then you can go and get a coffee and sit and look at this beautiful view through these lovely windows that we've designed. So it's really nice as a parent to go and sit with your kids looking at the beautiful view whilst I have a coffee and wait to be called through and think, well, actually, this is this is good. The patient flow works in the way we planned it. Everybody's moving around and enjoying the space in the way we planned it. So that's actually really nice. And I think even now, I read huge amounts of stuff. I listen to lots of webinars. I go to lots of conferences because I think with healthcare, you have to. But that's what I think makes it exciting because things are constantly changing. Not only the equipment that we're accommodating is constantly changing, but the way patients will move through a space, the way we treat people and put their health at the centre of everything. There's constantly new studies coming out in terms of sort of quantitative research in what makes people better. So you have to keep on top of all that stuff. But fortunately, I find it really interesting. So I've kept doing it. Well, just as a, a final footnote, just tell me for you personally, this must be incredibly rewarding work. It is. Obviously, different people like to do different things. And I've done a lot before I started doing healthcare. I did a lot of retail design and corporate offices design. And that's interesting in its own way. But this is really, yeah, it's a good reason to get out of bed in the morning (laughs) when you can see that things have been improved, even in a small way for people. There was a television report on the fifth anniversary of the opening of Shai Osadoku, which was the first of the Ghanaian district hospital. And, you know, we'd been looking at how it was doing after five years, and we were just looking at the fabric and the performance of it. But the news report said there'd been no maternal deaths in the first five years of this hospital, and that is outstanding compared to what had been happening before. And that is a good reason to get out of bed in the morning if you can help make something like that happen. Another example of it being useful was we did a hospice called Royal Trinity Hospice in London in Clapham. The um, chief exec at the time was a really inspirational woman called Anne Hooper. And we had this great brief of designing a space with our catchphrase was no long beige corridors off which people are slowly dying, but to try and make it a really inspirational and interactive space. And we designed the bedrooms big enough so that families could come and stay and hang out and that each room had a balcony or a patio space that was big enough to push a bed out onto. And I remember once going back to do some snagging after it had actually already opened and I was staring at bits of mastic and writing everything down and noticed that a young mum had gone out onto the balcony of the bedroom and was feeding her toddler because they were visiting grandma who was in hospice in her last few days and grandma was seeing the doctor and having an exam but mum didn't have to go home because she could just sit in the corridor or sit on the balcony and be there all day and feel that that was a space that they could be so yes I think healthcare is really rewarding and when you see people using the spaces 
that you've designed in the way that you intended them, that's hugely rewarding. Somebody once said as a, a sort of a brief for healthcare design, don't forget that a lot of people using your building will be having the worst day of their life. So anything that you can do to make that less confusing, less disorientating and more comforting and more a pleasant experience to be in that space, whether it's a yeah, a nice to touch light switch or a nice lobby with a nice view, then that's an incredibly rewarding thing to do. And I think that's why I was referring back to, you know, going to the Whittington with my own children and sitting in that space that I was working on as a design and thinking, actually, this does work. It is nice to sit here and have a nice view. It's nice to be able to have a cup of coffee whilst I do it. And the same with the African hospitals. You know, we've designed a whole campus so that staff will stay they've got somewhere to live on campus and that's nice and we've also designed as part of it we've got parents hostels because people will often travel a long way to be there you know there's nice landscapes you can go if your child is in the pediatric ward you can stay on site in a basic but nice hostel you can go and sit under the shade of a tree or in the waiting area and it's those small things that hopefully will make the worst day of somebody's life a little bit better Polly Barker, thank you so much for joining me on The Urbanist. The title of Chief Heat Officer is one that has been popping up more and more around the world in recent years. It's a relatively new position which was brought about by the Atlantic Council's Arshed Rock Foundation Resilience Centre. One of the most recent local appointments to this role is in Asia, based in the Bangladeshi capital of Dakar. It's the first for that continent. Bushra Afreen was appointed on the 3rd of May and is set to work putting in place measures to protect her community from the worst effects of extreme heat. Earlier, Monocle's Carlotta Rabello was joined down the line by Bushra and Carlotta began by asking about the situation as it stands today in Dakar. I mean, if we could even take a step back from Dhaka and look at the continent, I mean, Asia is warming up twice as fast as any other continent in the world. And Bangladesh, because of its geographic position, it's always hot and humid. So people in this city, especially people in Dhaka, have always been used to a very hot and humid environment. But there wasn't like such extreme weather until very recently. What happened is that The urban heat island effect kind of worsened the effects of rising temperatures. I mean, if you ever come to Dhaka and you're about to land and you're flying down and you break through the clouds and you take a glance down and all you see are just buildings. You don't see any trees. You just see buildings and rooftops and they're just packed together. There's no space. So there's just a lot of built up surfaces. They absorb a lot of heat. And there's also so much air conditioning that's being used. I mean, modern office spaces, they're not designed with natural ventilation in mind. They're designed with the use of air conditioning or central air conditioning in mind. So even in the winter, the ACs will likely be on. There's so much transportation as well. Every family that can afford it, they have two cars, three cars. So there's a lot of traffic. There's a lot of heat that's coming from the air conditioning. There's a lot of surfaces that are absorbing the heat. And the city also, when it was expanding, it built over a lot of water bodies. So there's a lack of water bodies. There's a loss of vegetation with the rapid sprawl of urbanization. Yeah, I think all of those combined has led us to where we are now. There's also lack of water accessibility as a clean, safe to drink water accessibility, which makes it really hard for people who don't really earn that much to be able to afford water. 
very recently we've had some deaths that's happened due to heat strokes and heat related illnesses and that didn't happen before it happened once in 2016 i think when we had the el nino el nino is back so with that in mind we know that it's going to get even hotter in the next two years well this year it's already really hot we had the longest heat wave it lasted i think about 10 days and it happened during ramadan so people were fasting and especially here the religious sentiment is so intense that even if people feel like they're going to faint they don't drink water they don't break their fast so a lot of people suffered during that time during the heat wave they were not prepared they're not resilient as i said i mean if you keep a rapid urbanization in one bubble and you do another venn bubble with the fact that people underestimate heat you combine them together and what you get is a very poorly prepared city when it comes to heat resilience Well, you seem to be tackling the issue quite head on. So I wanted to explore some of the things since you've been appointed to the position that you've been trying to achieve and some of the engagement even with the community because I guess what's also quite tricky not only when you're the first chief heat officer in your city and country but also in your continent. I'm guessing there's a, a fair amount of engagement with the community that needs to happen for people to even understand the risks that heat can pose. and there is a reason why it's often described as a silent killer. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Heat is a very invisible threat. People are so much used to the more visible kinds of threat that come along with climate change like cyclones. We just had a cyclone, but Bangladesh is really as a country it's much more resilient to that. We have shelters for that, we have evacuation procedures for that. But because heat is so invisible, it's so silent and it's so underestimated. we don't have that level of awareness then we don't really link extreme heat to a public health crisis for example during a cyclone people don't go out as much and we have like rickshaw pullers in this country right and they don't they take shelter somewhere but when it's an extreme heat situation like a heat wave going on a lot of people disregard that as something that would risk their lives that would endanger their lives i think one of the things that i that i've started to work on is to build a public awareness and link extreme heat to a public health crisis talk to the hospitals talk to the public health care centers do some sort of sms text messaging platform where we can alert our citizens those things are still in the works because we're still working on our plan but the heat season coming up around the corner it's already here i mean it's already here so we have to act right now because we have to get people super prepared and i'm really fortunate to have so my position it's an arshrak position right it's by the arshrak resilience center and they have so many resources and guides because i'm the 8th or 9th chief heat officer globally and this global community of ceos is just so inspiring they've all done such amazing work in their own cities it's really inspiring because i have been inspired by a lot of their work for example miami did text messaging as well i know that the ceo in santiago in chile is working on i think urban forests i know eugenia in sierra leone she has done work on the women especially vendors in the open markets like created shading so i think really when you just think about it it feels really huge but a lot of the work has already been done by the other CHOs and it's such a fantastic guide to learn from and i think one of the first things that we also have to work on is the building that baseline assessment or a survey where we really find out 
What are people in Dhaka feeling? How are they feeling about heat? Where are their thoughts right now on heat? And who are the most vulnerable people? And what are those people feeling about heat? How are they thinking about heat? Whether they're thinking anything at all about protecting themselves. Because heat protection isn't really, as I have said for the 10th time now, I think, but it's just so normalized that people don't realize that they're in danger. You mentioned there the other chief heat officers, and you're joining this international cohort of, I believe, eight other cities. Now, there is quite an interesting coincidence. It is the fact that all of you are women as well. I wondered if you think that there's something about female leaders being in this position that are able to have a different perspective on these urban issues that perhaps it's not as easy to come by for male counterparts? Or is it just a plain coincidence that all international chief heat officers happen to be women? No, it's absolutely not a coincidence. It's very much intentional. Because heat or any other climate disaster, it affects women the most. So for example, if a disaster happens, women are the last people to get out of there. I mean, contrary to the popular belief of like, get the women and children out first. But in Bangladesh, women stay and get the livestock out or get their children out or get the household items out. And, you know, they're just more vulnerable in terms of the domestic violence issue. Like, for example, with so much of the country being threatened by climate change uh, in the coastal regions, so much of the land is disappearing under seawater. They're losing their land and all of that is causing livelihood insecurity. And what's happening is we're seeing a rise in child marriages again. So all of these young girls are being married off and they're very likely coming to Taka as climate migrants, as new wives, and they don't have their families with them. They don't have their education with them. They don't have any agency. And since they're young, they are most likely, again, victims of domestic violence or there's childbirth issues as well, because they do get pregnant early as well. The city's healthcare and the infrastructure isn't adequate to support them. So women are like, it's an established fact that women are the most affected when it comes to the adverse effects of climate change. And that's no different than when we consider heat and extreme heat. You mentioned there, of course, how heat can contribute to this public health crisis that the city is facing. You also described all these more um, informal settlements and rural areas within the city that put part of the population in a more vulnerable position and certain neighborhoods certainly more vulnerable to the consequences of extreme heat. Perhaps just finally then, looking into the future, looking at the work ahead of you, what would you like your legacy to be as DACA's chief heat officer? What are some of the issues that it would mean a job well done for yourself to have been able to tackle in a short amount of time? The most important thing to me is honestly to work with my community and listen to them and listen to the most vulnerable people. Heat in Taka does not affect everybody equally. The effects of heat are dispersed very, very unequally in an almost unjust way to, especially it affects these women who are living in the informal sectors the most. Like, for example, a lot of them are going out of the informal settlements and walking all the way to the wherever they're working. And usually they're cleaners or they're cooks or their domestic servants and household helpers. And they're doing manual labor or labor that puts them directly in line with heat. And usually, in most cases, they don't have access to air conditioning in the places or the rooms that they're working in. 
so it's hot where they're working and that they're coming back at night and then they're cooking again for their families in those informal settlements in the heat. So we're in the process actually of launching a green wave, an urban greening project. So in that, I've made it my mission to make sure that the trees that are, will be planted they should be planted in the areas that need the trees the most. And I want to make sure that they're planted there the soonest. So for example, trees that have canopy, trees that are providing shade, they are providing a cool canopy. And a lot of the times when we're thinking about tree planting, when the city previously thinks about tree planting, informal settlements usually go as an afterthought or they're excluded from this conversation. So my job is to make sure that those trees are being planted there and uh, we have received a lot of feedback from those communities as well, where they want trees. I know there's very little space to plant them, but we have to find, we still have to be super creative and figure out a way to get some trees in there because it's unbearably hot. And the way the structures are built, the metal housing, it's just dangerous to the health of these children who are also living there to anybody with pre-existing medical conditions to elderly. And I could go on, but... One of the things, aside from building awareness and creating that baseline survey, is to go for more nature-based solutions and make sure that those nature-based solutions are very, very much inclusive and that they are able to provide cooling to the areas that need it the most. When you analyze the tree coverage in Taka City, you'll notice that where there are trees, those are affluent neighborhoods or like restricted government areas. There is a real lack of trees in low-income housing residential zones. So I really want to make sure that those jam-packed concrete jungles or these informal settlements, they get access to the trees first and that we build up community leaders who can take care of these trees so that they don't die and we can incentivize them properly. So all of these plans are in the works and I'm really excited about it because that is honestly the way to go. Like the way that the city urbanized, the extreme and aggressive way that these concrete buildings have just pushed through our water bodies and push through our vegetation and have cost us our biodiversity, have cost us our birds and bees. The tree planting also needs to be super aggressive in nature. <laughs> I know that sounds a little extreme, but we have to. We have to do something and it has to be really aggressive to recover what we have lost and to build resilience fast. Bashar Afreen, Chief Heat Officer for North Dhaka, Bangladesh there, in conversation with Carlotta Rebello. And that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. For more from the world of urbanism, sign up to the podcast, get new episodes every week, and subscribe to Monocle magazine at monocle.com. Today's show was produced by Carlos Rebello and David Stevens. And David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, well, here's Sampa the Great with Healing. Thank you for listening, city lovers. Yeah.